Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. I am John Human, editor of the IC, joined today by Harriet Russell. How are you doing, Harriet? Yeah, good, thanks. We're going to talk a lot of retail today. There's been a lot of updates, a lot of, uh, a lot of intrigue on the high street. Yeah, it's been busy. Has been busy. And uh, over in the control room, multitasking, because you've written some of the news this week. Megan Boxall, how are you, Megan? Good, thanks. Excellent. Uh, you've written a piece about IPOs this week. Mm-hmm. And I think you're involved, in fact, both of you are involved to some extent in the cover feature as well, which is about spotting... M&A targets and uh, some of the trends that have been uh, been happening uh, in the M&A markets. Um, let's start with a with new section. Uh, we will start with your IPO piece, uh, Megan. So this is basically rounding up, uh, taking a look at uh, the, the recent flurry of IPO activity, a lot, of, a lot of which haven't done very well, and trying to put some, uh, some, some thinking behind that. Yeah. Actually, if you look at the companies that have listed in London in the last year, they haven't done very well at all. But a lot of that has been because the market hasn't done well within the last, well, the last quarter. If you take in the AIM market in at the end of June, the average new listing was up 24%. But by the end of September, they were only up 4%. So that, that shows that it was actually more recent worries that, that have made the IPOs do less well. But that is what this piece is about. We need to not be just looking at the markets for the fact that some of the more recent listings have done badly. There's a lot more to analyse. Yeah, I mean, there is there is a, a school of thought that uh, sort of the later on in the IPO cycle, you get sort of a lot of Me Too type IPOs, companies basically taking advantage of good market conditions to get perhaps not not strong stories away. Uh, and that does appear to be a fairly consistent thread in some of the weakness that we've seen. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you look at the companies that have come to market recently, there are very few that actually spring out as good good companies and with a good reason for listing. I mean, bring your company to market if you want to raise some money from from a public market, if, you, if you've got a solid plan for where that money's going. But very few of them have done that. There's been a lot of selling shareholders, a lot of selling founders, private equity and venture capital... It's not. It's not a great sign if uh, if a company's coming to market just so their founder or private equity owner can sell down. Uh, yeah, and, and Aston Martin is obviously the Aston Martin Lagonda is obviously the uh, the case in point there, which we have spoken about quite a lot yeah. on this podcast. Um, but yeah, a lot uh, that was essentially an exit for for shareholders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And there have been other examples of that, and very rarely do those companies actually do well if if that the reason for their listing was just so the founders can take some money out. Yeah, I mean, aim you would think would. I mean, as you said, yeah, the, 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 uh, a lot of new IPOs had performed strongly up until the recent uh, market wobble. Uh, and you would think they were different. You would think these were growth companies looking to the markets for funding to accelerate their growth plans. But actually, even some of these companies seem like they're sort of fundamental problems lurking in many of them. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, there have been quite a few. There, there was a real dip in, in Q3 with the number of companies coming to market. But in terms of companies coming to aim with a solid investment strategy, they've just been few and far between. Yeah, and one, one you pick out here is uh, Quiz, yeah. which is something uh, that you've written about recently, Harry. I think they had a pretty nasty profit warning last week, which I think that was last week's magazine, wasn't it? It did, yeah. It squeaked into into last week's magazine. It's, uh, it's an interesting business. I think when it first came to market, it was actually quite misunderstood by a lot of people. A lot of, a lot of people just put it down as like a fast fashion retailer. What is it, actually, then? Well, it is a fashion retailer, but it's what we call a multi-channel business. So right. it actually sells across a huge concessionary retailer estate, mainly with Debenhams, but also with House Fraser up until recently. Ah, mm-hmm. well, Debenhams has had its uh, its own share of problems. Certainly I has. mean, is, is this is this 
Debenham's problems playing out in in quizzes PL. Well, it we actually wrote another news piece about that um, about three weeks ago called "The Problem or the Trouble with Department Stores," and we had had very poor results from John Lewis. Debenhams has had a lot of struggles, as people will be well aware of, and obviously House Fraser has collapsed or since been rescued. So we then wrote a piece saying, you know, by investing in some of these retailers like Quiz, like Ted Baker, you actually have to be aware that you are increasing your exposure indirectly to those sorts of department store businesses as well. Mm, mm. I mean, what are we... Are we you know, supportive of these these kind of fashion companies coming to market. I mean, Ted Baker has been a you know long been a favourite of the Investors Chronicle. Well, yeah, and I think ASOS is probably a star star performer for markets for years to come. Although not a company that sells through the high street so much. No, but, you exactly. Know, so so companies like Ted Baker, which have have been very popular and great shares to invest in in the past, have have run into a bit of trouble. Recently. Well, yeah, this is what we look at in this week's sector focus. I think for a long time analysts and investors have hailed these sorts of multi-channel businesses as really defensive because they do sell across what is ultimately the most sort of diversified revenue stream you can hope for um, in modern retailing. But we're looking at how potentially that's not all it's cracked up to be and have these sorts of businesses spread themselves too thin by pursuing what is known as an omni-channel customer. Mm. Um, The sort of customer that hopes to be able to shop across all of these channels quite seamlessly. And it seems to me that... that all retailers should offer omnichannel. So you know, as time progresses and 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 all retailers you know get their act together, it's not a differentiator, is it? No, it won't be eventually. But the the interesting thing is that there's a way to do it well and there's a way to do it badly. And uh, I think Burberry offers quite an interesting sort of case study here because they themselves have got a huge wholesale business, obviously, mm. um, and particularly in the US. But they've really had to change that over the last year. It used to include their beauty business. They've now put that on license. And wholesale partners in the US have been strictly curtailed because a lot of those partners, mainly department stores, albeit high-end ones like Saks Fifth Avenue, for example, were putting product on heavy promotion and then not renewing the accounts at the same level. Mm. So it's ultimately a dilution of the brand, it's a dilution of the product, and for luxury retailers like Burberry, that sort of thing's really important. Yeah, not, so a, place, had... not a place I spend a lot of money in Burberry, I have to admit. No, exactly. And they've, uh, they've had to really streamline that business, basically. It just got too big, and this is something I think that I end up coming back to and back to and back to in any retail piece that I end up writing, which is that over-expansion is the ultimate killer. Yeah, I'm, I must admit, Ted Baker is some a company that I, I spend uh, a bit of money with. And you know what? I think Ted Baker is an example. I mean, despite some recent share price wobbles, I do think it's a quality business. And, you know, just as a shopper, we have bought all of its channels, including outlets and high street stores and online. You know, there, there is a Would you say Ted Baker is, is an example of a company doing this well? Yeah, I would. I think the thing with Ted is that they they always seem to lose momentum in the middle of the year, the shares specifically. I don't mm. really know why. They maybe always they, Maybe their summer ranges aren't up so much. Well, they always just seem to run into a spot of bother in the middle of the year. And it's usually things sort of kind of out of their control, things like um, consumer sentiment in Asia or something like that. Mm. And then come Christmas, they rectify it all because they tend to perform extremely strongly over the festive season. Obviously, that is shortly going to be upon us. What so. have you... Of- Ted shares. What are we? Uh, uh, I think we're hold, hold at the moment. Yeah, probably cautious. I think yeah. I think retail warrants a bit of cautiousness right now. I mean, let's let's turn to the tip updates page quickly because there there were big profit warnings uh, both in your sector, uh, Megan, 
and your sector as well, Harriet. Um, let me let's start with uh, let's start with Megan's um, quickly before we come back to retail because we've got a lot of retail to talk about this week. Uh, Convertec, mm. absolute shocker. Yeah, Convertec has had a few structural issues in since it listed. So it's actually a prime example of a company that came, was floated out of private equity and they had a huge amount of debt when they came to market and the private equity founders, they weren't founders actually, they'd bought it from they bought it from a big US pharma company, I think, but they they sold down a lot when they when they listed their company. And it's had two profit warnings now in the time that it's listed. It was the biggest IPO of 2016. But this this was supposed to be like uh, uh what's the Smith and Nephew. Smith and Nephew, the medical uh, devices company. It's yeah, it's a medical devices company. But the problem with medical devices is that there are some very large there are a very small number of very large businesses and to make the jump from being a medium-sized business to a very large business is really difficult and the competition's just massive and smith and nephew is a leader in certain fields and that's its only real defense mm. and Convertec is second place in every single one of its markets and it's it's not good enough and it hasn't spent enough on r&d no I must have, my mum got some new knees recently and uh, she, I think she was a bit shocked when I was asking who supplied them it's not the thing she expected <laughs> me to be asking when I came to visit an hospital I suppose, I suppose the question is though if Convertec is now down so heavily as well why doesn't Smith and Nephew want to buy it doesn't that, have the money that is a good question that I often wonder about companies in these spaces who who you know who are challenging uh, to be you know number two or you know number one in certain fields that they operate in and yeah why isn't the big guy after them but why why would smith and nephew buy what is a pretty average business with pretty terrible operating margins when it can put that put that money to better use in research and development and, and that's what it's out, doing and simply out compete them with, with with its own products yeah which is exactly what it's doing and that's what convertech hasn't done and it hasn't outcompeted anyone because it hasn't put enough money into research and development and it it seems to have realized that in the last few months but it also has now run into this massive issue in its infusion devices business, something to do with a supplier who is stocking differently to how they used to. And it, it's, it's caused them a big profit warning. And that seems crazy to me that it's, it's a company in their smallest division has caused them to warn on their margins by a whole percentage point. And it's, mm. a, it's, a, big, it's a big thing just for one, one customer. I mean, in the interest of clarity, I should say this is on the tip updates page, but the tip was a sell. It is a sell. So tip, we, we, yeah. have, we have called this one in the right direction, uh, as we have with uh, Superdry, which is the lead story on the tip updates page this week. Uh, you said sell at 12 quid, and now there are uh, eight quid. Uh, yeah, we had our suspicions for most of the year that things were not going particularly well at Superdry and we started to do some more analysis on their operating margin which we found had declined over the last sort of four or five years quite steadily. We then had a huge uh, share sale from one of the co-founders who it should be said had stepped back from the business. This would be Julian Dunkerton. It would be yeah Um, but he sold 71 million pounds worth of stock. um, That's chunky. It is chunky. Um, at the time, the spokesperson said it was to pursue charitable endeavours as well as a divorce that he was currently going through. So take that as you will. I, I have seen that before, incidentally. Uh, shareholders, uh, executives having to sell large amounts of money to fund divorces. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very, it's very common. It's not uncommon. No, 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 not at all. But we, we tend not to cover it in our director's dealing section just because it's not particularly interesting and it feels a bit like airing dirty laundry. It's not indicative of a trading challenge. Yes, yes. But this felt different because the company had been um, steadily sort of starting to come off and we just thought, 
yeah, that's that's interesting timing. So we took a punt and we said, you know, we think there's going to be more trouble here. They'd hinted at several things like uh, foreign exchange uh, hedging policies, which weren't really working out for them. Um, they've now clarified that's going to give rise to another eight million pounds in unexpected costs. Mm, hedge, hedging is something that is a potentially dangerous approach that companies can take to F- FX risk. There's always a risk because depending even when you hedge, eventually it works its way out, right? Um, what exactly? So it, it is what it is. It's market timing, really, isn't yeah, it? Which it is truly is a question of timing. Which is which nobody's very good at. Well, very few people are very there good at. There were a handful of retailers who did it right before the 2016 referendum, which was very, very smart. Luck or judgment, though? Mm, I'd say judgment. Okay. On some of them. Some of them. Jules, for instance. Um, oh, you had them in this week, didn't you? Actually? I did. That's another podcast we can quickly plug. Yeah, plug um, that one. Uh, for the boardroom talk with those guys. That was pretty interesting. Um, yeah, it's, but Superdry, I think, you know, um, has... It's had this issue sometimes when founders step back. They've had to transition in a couple of new senior managers. Um, they've also had exposure to House of Fraser. They cited specifically challenges with trading partners as part of this profit warning. So, this, which goes back to the point we were making earlier about quiz and department store exposure. Yeah. Actually, it's probably worth noting that this week there was a very, very high-profile collapse in the US of Sears. Sears. Yeah. Huge company. Huge company. Um, bigger, bigger than Debenhams or anything, obviously. Um, but a similar sort of... Uh, model, I guess, in that they were typically department stores that appeared in shopping malls. You mm. know, sort of took one end, a bit like in Westfield or Blue Water here. Um, yeah, massive business, but had been in decline for a long, long time. So probably something we should be keeping an eye out in terms of other retailers who might be selling through Sears. Yeah, exactly. You know, we, we saw this when House of Fraser collapsed. Uh, we got a huge list of retailers making provisions and it really runs the gamut because some of these department stores um, sell across several different price points. So you have people like Quiz being affected who are not particularly expensive in the grand, grand scheme of things. But then, you know, you have people like Mulberry making the largest provision, mm. which is probably relative to the to the price of their goods. Um oh, Mulberry. Let's not go there. No, it's, not. it's yeah, it's kicking people when they're perpetually down. Really, yeah, yeah. Um, I sold that one years ago. Yeah, no, the valuation there just doesn't make any sense. I mean, let's, let's turn back to Superdry. Another thing they they said, and this is something I always hate to see. We got our ranges wrong. Mm. Uh, too many coats, too many jumpers. Yeah, the problem um, with Superdry is they've said that this isn't a seasonal issue. This is right. a consistent issue, and it's something that unfortunately the business was basically built on was selling to what they refer to these are not my words cool dads is their core customer i know i can see i can see uh, you grimacing you can't see i'm, I'm cringing <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's their approach and um cool dads according to them want jackets and hoodies um yeah the problem with that demographic in my sort of anecdotal perception of things is that they don't shop as frequently as female customers and female customers are now the priority they've been trying to move quite drastically into what they refer to as dresses skirts and denim to try and appeal to that female customer who who tends to shop more often Mm. um and so far it hasn't really come off yeah i actually i used to cover retail as i've probably said a million times before and and i actually put a sell tip out on super dry 
which was very successful for a short while because they were actually the reason it was successful because they had some uh, operational problems, which as a new company and fast growing, you sometimes get. So that that worked. But another thing I actually said was, you know, how, how much how much legs does this cool dad trend actually really have? You know, at what point does Superdry stop e- appealing to the cool dads? Well, yeah, and I think again, this is sort of a psychological generalization, but I think a lot of industry commentators would agree that male shoppers in that age bracket so we're talking maybe like 30 to 50 if we're generous um tend not to you know they sort of look at a jacket and they think well i've got a jacket female customers don't have the same psychology as much um repeat purchases are more um more probable or or buying buying the same item just so you can have a different a different jacket exactly and this and this is something that ted baker capitalizes on quite quickly although ted baker also sells very successfully in a menswear category it really really i think prioritizes a lot of its focus on on female consumers so my my kids absolutely love ted baker full disclosure john has two daughters absolutely (laughs) love it yeah um (laughs) so you know that's something that's worked out for them but super dry i think their their category their marketing around that has been fairly limited up until this point it should be said though that I've bought super, I've put super dry on on a buy tip before and that's also been successful. It was around sort of three years ago when Idris Elba first came on board and it had this sort of resurgence mm. of uh, of popularity for a second. I should take a moment to plug the Netflix documentary uh, Cut from a Different Cloth, which is on Super Dry and the Idris Elba Association. If anyone is interested, they made a documentary about that. It's hysterical okay i should watch it (laughs) (laughs) the the founders uh are in it quite quite heavily as is idris elba and uh i don't know it might might just shed some light on some of the current issues we'll put it that way there you go um loads more news and retail as i said uh on the same page we have shoe zone another another good tip because it's a slightly different end of the retail spectrum to super dry and not one for cool dads i wouldn't say no not at all um but shoe zone is a very interesting company to me because it's it's really an income stock at the end of the day they uh they don't sort of spend huge amounts of money and where they do they have spent it on this what they call a big box uh format of retailing and megan and i actually went out there another podcast plug (laughs) if anyone's interested in listening to that we went out and had a site visit with the guys there um and they showed us around one of these big boxes and uh suffice to say we were fairly impressed weren't we yeah, yeah. I, I, I was very impressed. I was surprisingly impressed. I didn't expect it to be as, as good as it was. Did you buy anything? I, I did not. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting business. They squeeze a lot of cash out of it and the shares have offered quite a generous income profile as a result. Um, however, this week they, they had a profit upgrade as well just to sweeten the deal. And uh, we've, uh, we've had them on, on a buy since August. So that one's up quite nicely. Yeah, rare success story right now in the in the retail sector. Mm. Um, another another good week in the retail sector came from ASOS. It did yeah. indeed. Yeah, we had uh, we had full year results from them. They're always a bit of an odd one in terms of timing, but yeah, we've had uh, we've had the annual numbers from them, and Actually, they were good. There was a huge bounce on Wednesday when we covered them. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame because they had had quite a significant tumble um, in July when the managers came out and said that they. Uh, expected sales to grow at around 25% this year. Now, <laughs> to any other retailer, that's going to be a dream. But for ASOS, it was actually at the bottom end of their guided range mm. for growth this year. So that put a lot of people's teeth on edge and the shares took quite a significant tumble as a result. However, yesterday, they came out and reported a 26% growth rate 
not only that, their gross margin was up, their profits were up, um, and the outlook was fairly sort of bullish as well. So so the shares gave us a nice rebound. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I, you know, I used to think these shares were so expensive. Uh, mm. But actually, you know, now I'm looking at this and 47 times forward earnings doesn't seem that, that <laughs> mad anymore, given where we are in the market cycle. Well, as, as I say in the IC view, it's actually a 14% discount to some of the sector peers and to its own two-year trading average as well. So it's it's cheaper than it's been for a while. And I think this is going to be probably the way it goes now because you're getting many more players into that space who help to kind of even out the valuations or at least be able to set them in context. So it might start to look a bit more reasonable. I I think the more you see, the more companies you see coming into this space, particularly companies that decide to list in in this, you know, online fast fashion Mm -hmm. uh, area, the better ASOS looks. Yeah. It's, it's just the market leader. And I've written stuff in the past about a monopoly versus a possible duopoly with Boohoo. Obviously, Boohoo's growing extremely fast. But Boohoo's more expensive as a result, mm. as you might expect. Um, but there's some tiddlers coming to market as well. That are, uh, we, let's not name any names. Let's but, not name uh, names. We've, we've named names upstairs. <laughs> but, yes. um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely going to be a space that we see more and more companies coming into because it's just the way that fashion is is sold to younger generations so hopefully as you get more kind of peers to be able to do this sort of cross analysis you can understand the strength in asos's retailing model yeah i I, one of these companies which shall remain nameless for the time being uh until i do until you or i do some further research but one thing i did notice about it is this company which has come to market as a fast fashion retailer has fewer followers on twitter than me and that's uh, very proud of that i was (laughs) incredibly proud of that but more concerned that i mean given given that social media is a really i mean you've written about this in section focuses it's an important part of the marketing mix. How is a company with fewer Twitter followers than me doing business? And set up by two ex-magazine journalists who should really understand the importance of that sort of hype that you can build on social media and, and ultimately demand for products. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see that it's still so small. In that yeah, capacity. I, I thought it's very strange. Talking of uh, unsuccessful ventures onto the market, Foot Asylum <laughs> uh, is, is right next to it. I, I don't think we need to say much about that, really. No. Except uh, that the recommendation is still sell. Still sell. I sold it. Oh, gosh, can't even remember now off the top of my head because uh, Alex actually picked up these results for me this week. But as expected, we had two prior profit warnings, so we knew they were going to be bad. So there weren't really many mis- surprises and it's still bad. Indeed. basically all I can say. I, I, again, I, I just, it's just feels me too you know jd sports is an absolutely it's a beast of a business and you know well it should say that foot asylum is little more than a related party transaction to jd sports i mean it's it's a family kind of affair but why do you need it why does it need to exist and 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 and, 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 you know i actually i asked my in-house fashion gurus at home (laughs) the kids uh whether they knew foot asylum they had never heard of it they had no idea and they know these things they love trainers yeah and it's interesting because one of the big things that they seem to have sort of started to go wrong with um is well the problem is all in the margin, but one of the things that the brokers have really pointed out is that building sort of exclusive partnership deals with some of the big manufacturers like Nike and Adidas and so on is is what basically has helped keep JD Sports afloat in this kind of market. That whole kind of we have these trainers and no one else does. Mm. You can only buy them here. Foot Asylum really hasn't been able to cultivate, it seems, the same relationships. And as physical retail gets sort of more and more exclusive and more and more streamlined, those partnerships have to as well and so they they really only stand to lose out it's only because JD Sports is now building scale and ultimately building scale internationally that it's becoming a much more defensive business yeah indeed thank you 
That's not very tough now. <laughs> there are more results. I think we've got WH Smith in there. We do. Same old, though. The same old. What more can you say? About it? It's shutting some stores. Not it many. Is, but, yeah, uh, that's true, actually. That's, that's not fair of me. It, high street stores. Yeah, it is pulling back from the high street a little bit faster than people perhaps expected. But it's still a game of two halves, WH Smith. We have a WH Smith in my high street. It is just a dreadful shopping experience it's now. dire isn't it, it, it it's... but well, you always say they're the best cost cutters in the business yeah but I, you can only take that so far and, <laughs> and, and you cut you cut to bone at some point you know it's uh it's not a fun experience going into wa smiths no i always think their stores look gray on the inside like you go in and all, because they took all those light bulbs out yeah. of the ceiling do you remember well you become you feel, i feel like you're becoming gray just being in there it's just uh, anyway sorry wa smiths fix your high street shops if you can um should we turn to the cover feature quickly uh, i know you both had a had a hand in this um, Megan, why don't you kind of introduce the, the the concept here? Yeah, it's looking at which companies may be the next takeover targets. Because obviously, if you buy a company before it, there is an offer made, then you are likely to make quite a lot of money from that share. Because well, Sky is a very good example. In the last few weeks, if you had held Sky before Fox made its original offer in December two thousand and sixteen, those shares are now worth one hundred twenty four percent more. So. Wow. Now that that is uh, that's kind of the, the old, gives uh, some support to the old adage, you know, buy on the rumor. Although there was a deal, there wasn't much rumor beforehand. That there was a little bit because James Murdoch had been appointed chairman again in January of 2016, but the share price had collapsed before mm. that happened. And actually, Theron, who used to cover Sky a couple of years ago, had said it was probably a takeover offer so he made a great call there okay so that's um, the kind of thing we've been trying to do in this feature exactly, like look yeah. for those little signs that say something might be happening there, here yeah. so that might be an industry trend that something is happening in this industry which means that you know uh, a lot of listed companies in the uk are potentially on the on the target list of, of some bigger players yeah uh, management changes that are quite interesting mm-hmm. and sector trends if there's been another acquisition elsewhere in the sector specifically if there was a reason behind that that acquisition Harriet pointed out the the Tesco Booker deal which happened earlier this year there was a reason behind that deal the Amazon effect and and does that mean there are other companies in the supermarket sector that may be pursuing the similar kind of deals are there Harriet well there are indeed I mean you say you say tiny signs um mine's a pretty big sign huge glaring signs (laughs) huge glaring sign which is the um potential merger between Sainsbury's and Asda of course which is currently before regulators it's in a phase two, which was no surprise, really. Yeah, I mean, usually we want companies on the other end of the deal to, to whose share prices might get a bit of a bump if someone makes an approach for them. I mean, what does this mean for Sainsbury's share price? Should say, it get through? You can still buy Sainsbury's shares. And I think, actually, um, I haven't tipped them in a long time, but you know, well, people who have read my coverage for a while will know that I was bullish on them before this. I'm obviously in a neutral position until the deal kind of goes through or closes. But, um, but yeah, I think it's a pretty well-run business, actually. I think Mike Coop doesn't get... Um, sort of nearly the same credit as someone like Dave Lewis but someone like Dave Lewis obviously came from a much more sort of dramatic context with the accounting scandal over at Tesco Sainsbury's to me is a much more sort of slow and steady kind of burn but it's it's done well and I I don't think this merger you know is, is a bad idea actually it's a different kind of deal to Tesco and Booker Tesco and Booker was what we refer to as sort of a vertical deal because it was really about sort of lengthening that point from A to B across the supply chain whereas to me Sainsbury's and Asda obviously do the same thing it's not a wholesaler and a retailer it's two retailers but they're going to build scale horizontally what we know about about the grocery market and Sainsbury's and Asda's relative positions in it is that they actually operate in uh, geographically different uh, 
places. Yeah, so, sort so, of. So, so there isn't a huge overlap there. It's not huge. They've had they in the phase two. They've actually found four hundred and sixty-three areas of overlap, um, but at the moment, people think that that was largely um, done on sort of very small local businesses, mm. um, as opposed to sort of big superstore overlaps. So the actual sort of uh, closures that the CMA could demand as part of the deal or possible disposals might not be that extensive although it should be said that current estimates range from 12 to 300 so yeah. um, it's a fairly wide 12. bracket 12 to 300 that's a big, big range yeah. I mean it seems to me that's had form in, in, in terms of, uh, sort of corporate activity At Argos was a very interesting deal uh, a couple of years back was it a couple of years back yeah it was yeah. now it was um, I mean again in response to the threat of Amazon. Yeah, and at the time, the market was so sceptical that it wouldn't sort of take on Argos and be able to make it into anything. But if you look at what West Farmers did with Homebase, because obviously Homebase and... Killed it. Yeah. (laughs) Homebase and Argos used to be part of what was known as Home Retail Group, which was another another listed company. And they sort of split in two and sold off off the relative parts. I mean, yeah, Homebase basically doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, and, Ar- and Argus is going going strong and, and presumably yeah. con- contributing a, a nice number to, to Sainsbury's profits. Yeah, they've now completely assimilated the the sales figures that they report. So they obviously when the deal was first done and they were trying to integrate it, they used to report it separately. But now it's just considered a whole. And I have to say, I was just before this podcast, I was telling you that for the first time ever, I clicked and collected something at Argos and picked it up in a Sainsbury's. So. How exciting. It's obviously working. They've won a customer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, should we turn to media, Megan? Because I know you mentioned Sky already. There's obviously been huge amounts of activity, usually at the larger end of the market cap spectrum over in the US. I can't keep up with all the deal making that goes on I there. Know. It's been relentless. Um, some investment bankers must be making very large mm. amounts of money. Um but actually, those trends still have some implications. It's still playing out, and, and there are some implications for, for one or two UK companies. Basically, tell us what they are. Yeah, so the deals that have gone through recently is obviously Comcast, Sky, Disney, Fox, which is still going through regulation, but that was a massive deal. AT&T, which bought Time Warner for $85 billion. Yeah, these are all enormous mergers. But there are also still a lot of companies in the US, a lot of media companies, which haven't yet made an acquisition, and some of them looking like they really, really need to. Viacom is one. They're the company which own the last of the four big cable networks in the US. And in the US, it's a massive trend at the moment for people just cord cutting. They're not paying their cable bills anymore because they're just subscribing to Netflix Mm. and Amazon Prime. So these companies need to buy content producers. And we have got good content producers in the UK. ITV is one of them. They've got fantastic production arm. Um, today, Bake Off is is going to the US apparently, and Emma Bunton is going to pr- be presenting it. That's not made by ITV, but it's a UK program. And Entertainment One is another company in the UK. It is actually a Canadian company, but it's listed in London, and they they are our takeover tip of the year this year because we we think that someone's going to come come knocking on the door, and a lot of people think that because the share price is up so much this year. It's now quite expensive, which is making that takeover story look a little bit less strong. But yeah. it is. But the, but the price doesn't seem to be an issue in this in this particular well, industry. I mean, people are just paying what they need to pay. I mean, 124% premium on a FTSE 100 company, that's that's insane. Yeah. And, and they're p- paying such ridiculous amounts. I think Sky was over 12 times adjusted catch profits, which is a huge premium compared to the other deals that have gone through. Comcast was desperate for that acquisition. And, and I think Viacom is going to be desperate for an acquisition. And maybe even Netflix at some point as well, because they're spending an awful lot of money on their content. 
in a bid to try and fight down Disney and Fox and all the other content producers. Uh, let's go back to Entertainment One. Um, I mean, it's, it is taking a long time. You would have thought that this would have been snapped up already, given the, the interest in some of these other... Why is it taking so long for, are, for someone to emerge as a, a bidder for this There company? are a few issues with Entertainment One, which we have flagged before, in that because it's domiciled in Canada, there's something to do with tax, and it would have to keep its Canadian domicile to get the tax breaks, which it kind of needs to invest so much in content. So any potential bidder, and it has had bids before, have got to get their way, work their way around that that factor, mm. um, which probably which probably is putting people off. But it is it's a great content producer. It's got a portfolio of original content which is worth two billion dollars. What's it got? Well, it's the biggest proportion of its portfolio is Peppa Pig. Oh yes, of course it is. Yeah, yeah you, they don't even barely mention that anymore. It's uh, no, I know it's, 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 making, it's, it's made a lot of good films. It made the Post last year. Okay, yeah, I watched that on the plane. Spielberg, yeah, is that right? Spielberg, yeah. Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks, yeah. Meryl Streep. Yeah, it's a great bit, cast. A little bit cliched, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the the commode and Mayo show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so so good proper film productions. Some great evergreen content like Peppa Pig. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why is no one buying? Yeah. I'm hoping Netflix will within the next couple of weeks. They had some numbers. Have they got numbers coming out soon? They had Netflix? numbers a couple of days ago. Uh, Netflix numbers? Netflix numbers. And how were they? Fantastic. They were so good. They they added 7 million subscribers in the third quarter. It's crazy. When they've already got a quarter of the world's population subscribed already. It's unbelievable how they're still managing to subscri- get these, this massive number of new subscribers. It, it, it is interesting. You know what? I mean, I, I subscribe to a number. We've talked about this before. It, it's, it's interesting in the context of the cord cutting trend. Um, I probably do spend as much on content every month as I would if I subscribed to a you know cable TV company. Yeah, me too. But because it's like £8 from... You don't notice you, it. You just don't even yeah. think about it. Yeah. It's, it's such and if a good put, And if they put it up by 50p a month, they... You don't really think twice about it, but if Sky had put their their subscription up by five pounds, which was happening quite regularly towards the end of its of its time as a company on its own, that it, you you do think twice about that. You think is it actually worth paying that much money for the football and Game of Thrones? Mm, it's definitely worth paying money for Game of Thrones. Um, let's I mean let's talk about Netflix really very quickly because. A couple of months ago, or a quarter ago, in fact, it had some numbers which the market didn't like quite so much, and and obviously this was this was presented sensationally as you know kind of the, the beginning fang, of the, the end. beginning of the end for yeah. the fangs. But you know, has the market turned back towards you know in favour of of these big tech stocks? Well, I think it was Goldman Sachs cut their numbers for Netflix on the day before Netflix numbers came out, which was a bold move. It was headline grabbing, that's for sure. It was they obviously made the wrong call, but they are still saying in the long term Netflix is not shaping up to be the long term business model. And and that's kind of what we argue in or we argued in the trends feature last week. Is this a company destined for the future or is it kind of a trend which has happened? And but these most recent numbers suggest that Netflix is still going from strength to strength. Twelve billion dollars on content this year suggests it's taking the content really seriously. And and everyone is scrambling around it to try and catch up, which is why Disney is spending a ridiculous amount of money buying Fox and why Comcast has had to spend an even more ridiculous amount of money on Sky. Uh, there's a few more sectors we look at in this feature. We look at the payments industry where there's been a lot of activity. We look at gambling uh, and we look at recruitment, which again is a tech-driven trend. Uh, with yeah, well, they're all kind of tech-driven trends. I mean, even actually. retail with Amazon being the driver, there's there are big 
change is happening in tech and, and consolidation, it, it turns out, is the answer to these companies keeping up. Indeed, it is quite interesting. In fact, I'm going to, I never I never do this on this podcast, but uh, I'm going to talk about the quote uh, of the week, which we took from Chris Dillow's column this week. And he talks about the stock market's long-term rise has been driven by superstar companies, not so much by the average one. And actually, I've seen some other research on this, that the, the, the market's return comes from a very tiny handful of companies yeah. over the long term. Well, that's what James and I did when we did Fear, Fear the Fangs. And but it is those companies it's now. Those companies. It's the tech companies, yeah. and they are at the core of everything. Yeah. yeah. No much as you, you know, you can't deny it. Mm. They are. They are what is making the world work now. Yeah. It's incredible. There you go. Wow, that's a surprisingly positive note for me to end this podcast on. Um, there's lots more in the magazine this week. Markets are a bit, bit, bit nicer, which is why we're all feeling a bit better. Um, You've already heard about the sector focus that Harriet's written uh, on multi-omni-channel retailing. Um, we've got Algie Stock Screen on the next page, which looks at best of British shares, companies that may have been oversold as a result of Brexit fears. Uh, quite a few results this week, including an interesting uh, update from Bellway, uh, a, a house builder, a sector we're all keeping a very, very close eye on. Lots in the personal finance and fun section, which they will talk, talk about tomorrow. All the usual tips and comments. Uh, Phil Oakley has looked at Hargreaves Lansdowne this week, how it makes its money. It's a fantastic piece of analysis. Uh, really, really worth getting getting to grips with. It's about economic moats, which is something we look for in all companies that uh, that, that we uh, we think about buying. Uh, and Paul Jackson uh, in the No Free Lunch column has looked at Unilever, um, which is another interesting story of uh, tax jurisdictions and uh, and political. Uh, influence on stock markets but there we go anyway um thank you harriet and thank you megan thank you all for listening pick up the magazine in all good news agents uh who's next seeking out the uk markets likeliest takeover targets i will not be here next week i'm on holiday uh but uh i'm sure the team will do a fantastic job uh, of putting the podcast together speak soon <laughs>